Can everyone please give Kathleen a round of applause for that incredible Bible reading? Uh, it's just unbelievable. Big passage. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for those of you who've said really kind things, Tom and, and, and others on the chat. It's just really significant for me on this last day um, with, with you guys. And I just want to thank you so much. Um, it's, it's sad, as I've said, uh, to be saying goodbye to you. Um, it's also a privilege, really, to be able to do it preaching, uh, to be able to open God's word. Um, God speaks to us, God's with us, and it's just wonderful that we can finish our time, I can finish my time with you, um, opening his unchangeable word um, with you. And if you've got your Bibles there, uh, please keep them open to Joshua. We're going to be covering three chapters, uh, starting at Joshua 9. I don't know what your experience of um, isolation has been like. One of the things that has been sort of a consistent experience for me is waiting on every word of our premier, Gladys Berejiklian. Um, I was excited a couple of weeks ago. Um, I heard a rumor that she was about to make this big announcement. School was going back earlier than expected. Right? That, was, that was what I'd heard. That was the rumor. My wife and I, over the moon, okay, very excited. For six long weeks, uh, we'd been homeschooling. And to be honest, it's felt a little bit like a prison sentence, all right, like for all concerned, not just us. But in that moment, when the rumors got out, I don't know where we read it from, ABC, the website or whatever, when the rumors were out, the word was out, um, we were excited. This was momentous news in our household. Well, as we come to this, our next section in the book of Joshua, word has also got out. But it's not like the word from Gladys Berejiklian. Uh, this was a different kind of momentous news that we read about in Joshua 9 to 11. The people of the land of Canaan that heard the news of all that God was doing for his people, Israel, but they weren't happy. They weren't happy at all. We're going to be looking, as I've said, at three chapters today, uh, chapters 9 to 11. Uh, but the first chapter, the, sorry, the middle chapter, it sort of brings a bunch of things together. The first chapter really sets the scene, and we're going to start there. It records two responses to the news of Israel's success. The first one is mentioned really briefly. Have a look in chapter 9, verses 1 to 2. But that's going to be the response that we see, we saw in chapter 10, and we'll continue to see in chapter 11. The response is, that first response to the news of Israel's success, a number of kings rally together. Have a look there in chapter 9, verse 2. They rally together as one to fight Joshua and Israel. God's people are set for a showdown. Okay, The first response, violent opposition. The second response to the news of Israel's success comes from this other people group, the Gibeonites. Have a look at verse 4. They act with cunning in chapter 9, verse 4, and they succeed. It seems they knew God had given different instructions on dealing with distant versus near neighbors. And you can read about them another time in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 10. Near neighbors, God commanded, were to be totally destroyed. Their influence was to be completely wiped out. The land was to be holy. Distant neighbors, however, were to be treated with treaties and alliances. The Gibeonites made a plan to look like distant neighbors and it worked. 
They sent out their leaders looking like they'd traveled long and far and Israel was successfully deceived in chapter nine. Now, this was bad news for Israel. This is not what God wanted. Remember, the land of Canaan was set apart. It was going to be, it was supposed to be holy for his people and his people alone. So how could Israel get things so wrong? Were they just really stupid? Well, no, stupidity wasn't their problem. The Gibeon deception was a really good deception. That's the point being made with all the details. If you scan over it, starting in verse 4, all the details recorded in chapter 9. Descriptions of worn out sacks, worn out wineskins, you know, torn, mended, patched sandals and clothes there in chapter 4 to 5 and 12 to 13. Dry, crumbly provisions. The author of Joshua, it's like he's painting this picture that you can almost see and touch. It's vivid. The point is, it's a good deception, okay? Israel's problem wasn't stupidity. So what was it? Well, we're told what Israel's problem was in chapter 9, verse 14. They did not ask counsel from the Lord. That was their problem. Israel made their decision, in other words, on sight and not faith. They were being self-reliant and not God-reliant. That was their problem. It wasn't stupidity. They were being self-reliant and not God-reliant. And so often we have the same problem, don't we? We judge by what we see and not by the faith we put in the promises and the reality of a God who loves us and cares for us and is with us. And so we're fearful. We're anxious. I'm speaking from my own experience of my own self. We're fearful. We're anxious over things that aren't ours to control. Our families, our future, our significance. We're supposed to learn from the example of Israel here. Don't be like them. Live by faith and not by sight. And how do we do that? Well, one way that the Bible is pretty clear about is to pray. And more specifically, pray needy prayers. Prayers that express God dependence, our need of him. That's what I think God wants from us off the back of this talk today. Prayers like that of the tax collector in Luke chapter 18, verse 13. He stood at a distance God have mercy. That's all he said. What I'm trying to say is one of the ways we can live by faith and not by sight, one of the ways we can apply God's scripture to us in Joshua 9 today is praying needy prayers. And what does that look like actually for us today? Well, I can tell you what it's looked like for me quite recently. It's looked like praying for wisdom. Pretty soon after uh, the pandemic hit, I had this, I started feeling this deep need of, for wisdom. My world, like everyone's, was really turned upside down and I didn't know how to be. I didn't know how to live. And so rather than get out all the self-help books, which have their place, I got out the book of Proverbs and I prayed. I prayed a lot. In particular, I prayed my need. I prayed prayers like, dear God, I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) I don't know what I should be thinking, feeling, planning. Please help. I'm open to anything, right? Needy prayers. At other times, dear God, I can see what you want from me, but I feel absolutely powerless to do it. 
Please help. I know I'll fail without you. Now I can tell you, I've prayed those prayers from the heart these last few weeks. And they're prayers that God's answered in everyday kind of ways, little ways. A little more patience with the kids. Goodness knows I've needed that. A little less anxiety about the future. Try praying for a need, a real need this week. Because I think God's calling us, for the bad example of the Israelites here, to be less self-reliant and more God-reliant. Israel was self-reliant and it had consequences for them. And yet notice, their foolishness didn't stop God's plan. In fact, God used it as an occasion to show grace. Firstly, by graciously sparing the Gibeonites in chapter 9, verse 24. And secondly, by acting as the Gibeonites, these outsiders, acting as their saviour. Which brings us to the next section of our passage, chapters 10 to 11. Israel's foolishness doesn't stop God's faithfulness. The conquest continues in the chapters that follow, and it all begins with this act of salvation for the Gibeonites. The news that led the Gibeonites to fear God in chapter 9, the same news leads this other guy, Adoni Zedek, the king of Jerusalem, who we read about, this news leads him to violent opposition, that first response to God's news. He forms an alliance with four other kings. You see it, we read it, chapter 10, verse 3 to 5. And this new alliance sets out to attack Israel's new allies, the Gibeonites, in chapter 10, verse 5. They cry out, chapter 10, verse 6, save us. They're begging for salvation. And then for the first time in our uh, chunk of the Bible, from chapter 9 to this point, the first time, God speaks, steps in. Look at what he says in chapter 10, verse 8. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. God's calling Joshua to have the opposite attitude to the Israelites in chapter 9. See that? God's calling Joshua, Don't rely on yourself. Rely on me. Because God's the one fighting this battle. Victory is the Lord's to give, not Joshua's to take or earn. This is God's plan. This is God's battle. He's the star of this show, not Joshua. That that was God's message for Joshua in this moment. And that's the big point, really, in the remaining scenes of this big passage, chapters 9 to 11. God's the star of the show. He's on the front line. He's bringing his people into their promised rest. It's a point that's particularly highlighted in the very first battle that we read In chapter 9, verse 8 to 14. So the five kings, they make war on Gibeon, 10 verse 5. And it's the Lord, see that? Not Joshua, who miraculously intervenes. The Lord, not Joshua, throws them into a panic, chapter 10, verse 10. The Lord strikes them with a great blow, chapter 10, verse 10 as well. And the Lord sends hailstones from heaven, killing more than any army, chapter 10, 11. And the Lord... Stops the sun and the moon, chapter 10, 12 to 13. Now, this episode has received a lot of attention, an attack, really. Some say it completely discredits the accuracy of the Bible. Uh, The argument goes something like this. We know through the results, the observations of science, 
that such an event would have been catastrophic for the world as we know it. Therefore, this account must be false. Now, it's an objection that raises some really good questions and should be taken seriously. And many have done it. And there's lots of books that you could read, particularly on this one question. But the important point for us now is to understand what truth this account in chapter 10 of Joshua is actually trying to get across. What's God telling us today? And it's not mainly a truth about how molecules are relating to forces. It's not a scientific account. It's a God account. This passage is about how God is relating to his people. That's why the events are summed up as they are in chapter 10, verse 14. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. God's doing something unprecedented here. That's what's, that's what's being said. It's his battle. It's his plan. But he's using Joshua, frail Joshua, human Joshua, to make it all happen. Particularly, God's using Joshua's prayer in chapter 10 to 12. Joshua prays in chapter 10, verse 12. Have a look at it there. Sun, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. God uses that prayer, that specific prayer in that specific moment. See what's going on? Joshua is interceding for his people, God's people, Israel. He's praying on their behalf that God would give them a victory they so desperately need. And God uses that prayer. God fights for Israel through the dependent prayer of Joshua. God fights for Israel through the dependent prayer of Joshua. The Lord gives the five enemy kings into Israel's hand. You can read that in chapter 10, 19. And the remainder of our passage from chapter 10 to 20, 10, 29 to eleven twenty two, tells of Joshua's total conquest of the promised land, exactly as promised to Moses. What's the consistent message throughout those verses? Joshua acted in God reliance. He did just as the Lord commanded. It's stated repeatedly in 1040, 1112, 1115, and 1120. And God gave the victory. Joshua didn't get it. Joshua didn't earn it. God gave it. That's stated as well. 1030, 32, and 118. The whole story of chapter 10 to 11 is then summed up in chapter 1123. Have a look at it there. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. God himself had brought, had bought his people through the fierce, through fierce opposition to complete victory. From war to peace. From wandering in the desert in Exodus to rest in God's promised land. And he did it through the leadership of the new, sorry, and he did it through the leadership of the new leader of Israel, the new Moses, Joshua. And Joshua's victory came through trust of and obedience to God's promise. But many of us, we know the rest of the story, don't we? So Joshua's victory was pretty short-lived ultimately. Centuries of disobedience later and Israel are in exile. 
No land, no army, no nation. They've lost everything. Joshua couldn't rescue them, in other words, from their self-destruction. And so Joshua's victory here was never really meant to be the end of the story for God's people, nor the end of the story for God's plans and purposes for all of humanity. It was always supposed to point to another victory. Jesus Christ steps into history as the new Joshua. His name means the same thing. Yahweh is salvation. Only Jesus brings a kind of salvation no man, mere man, ever could. A kind of victory that would never fail. Victory over that exact self-destructive attitude at the heart of every Israelite, and if we're honest with ourselves, at the heart of every one of us. The attitude that says, God is not the star of my show. He might be the star of somebody else's show, but he's not the star of my show. I'm the star of my show. That's the attitude that Jesus comes to bring victory over. Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, crowning moment, won a victory that no person ever could. He reconciled us to the God we'd abandoned. And Jesus lives right now, risen, reigning as the true Joshua, always interceding on behalf of his people. Romans 8, 31, 37 puts it like this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who, is, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, or we might add a global pandemic, now, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Jesus is at the right hand of God, interceding for you, for you, for me, for his people. He's bringing us a victory. He's bringing us a sure hope. He's bringing us a present peace that cannot be taken away. The message today is not be strong and courageous like Joshua and you'll have the victory that you want. The message is because of Jesus, because of his strength, because of his courage, because of his utter determination to love us when we were unlovable, we have the victory we desperately need. Now, if you're not yet a follower of this Jesus, I just want you to hear that this is a message for you as well. So Jesus wants you, as much as anyone, to have the victory he won over sin on the cross. To enjoy the freedom and hope and peace of his forgiveness. Can I encourage you, please, take it. Take it today. God was the star of Israel's show in Joshua 9-11. to And whoever you are, 
He wants to be the star of yours as well. He wants all of us to stop faking it, (laughs) to live God-reliant, not self-reliant, to pray hungry as the needy creatures we really are, to praise him for the victory we so desperately need. And I'm just going to do that right now as I lead us in a time of prayer. Please pray with us. Loving Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much that you've come to us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you so much, Father, that by his death, by his resurrection, by his ascension, we have a victory over our sin that we could never have accomplished on our own. Father, we have a deep need. We all share a deep need. We need your forgiveness, your love. And we just thank you so much today that you have just poured that out on us through the Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.